In the name of God who loves us, who once walked among us, and who spurs us ever on. Amen. Please be seated. It's an annual question. I ask it of myself every year. I've asked it so often, I don't know if I've ever asked it aloud before. But it comes up. Why are you here? Why are you here? Absolutely. I mean, sure, the music is great, and the music is great. And it's wonderful to see each other this morning when not quite as warm as it might be, but the spring is, is beginning to blossom. But it doesn't answer the question, why are you here? It's a myth, maybe. That's what you might have heard. I've been reading a book by, by a man named Bart Ehrman. He's a scholar from North Carolina, UNC. A and he says that, that that whole gap of time between Jesus' life and when the first Gospels were written, anywhere from 40 to 60 years, the stories were told over and over and over again about Jesus. And he postulates that the stories grew and changed as those 40 to 60 years happened. And so whatever we know about Jesus' life, probably in some way, the stories changed until finally they were, they were codified in some way, written down in some way by the gospel writers. So the stories that we know about Jesus uh, may not have really been about Jesus. Like, you know, historically Jesus, there was nobody there after all. There was no embedded journalist um, with the apostles. There wasn't anybody taking pictures. There wasn't anybody taking notes. So... We're not sure exactly what happened, and there's lots of postulations about that. There's plenty of ink that's been spilled over what happened on that first Easter morning. And it's gone everywhere from, from there being some kind of a, of, a, of a bodily appearance, a bodily arising, a bodily resuscitation. You know, like in uh, Mel Gibson's movie, you know, where you see the the sort of fleshy thigh at the end of the movie, and, and, and you know, oh my gosh, he's back, you know? I mean, he's been touched in his back just the way he was. And the other end of the spectrum is it's a ghost. It's not really real person. It's, it's in their, their grief over the loss of their friend. Um, they just, I'm seeing things now. It's a psychological um, phenomenon. An event, And they run all the way in between, from one part to the other. You can see them all. As a matter of fact, even the gospel writers, the, the ones who we have, the stories that we have that are written down, they're not sure, are they? I mean, they conflict. Even within their own gospel, the ones that they've written, they conflict. Jesus walks through a closed door, um, something a physical body can't do. And yet in the very next scene, um, Thomas touches his very flesh, the wound in his side. The people on the way to Emmaus don't recognize Jesus. And yet in the same gospel, 
Jesus asks them for a piece of broiled fish, and he eats it in front of them. Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him when she sees him in the garden. And yet in that same gospel, he sits on the beach and he has breakfast with his friends. So what's the scoop, folks? What's the real story? Is that why we're here? We're looking for the real story. Maybe, maybe somebody can tell you exactly what happened, but it's not me, because I don't know. So I keep asking, why are you here? If we don't really know the story, it could be anywhere from a, from a whole made-up kind of a cartoon thing. Um, you know, there are movies out now, interestingly enough, there are movies about Jesus' body being unfound and, and centurions scouring the countryside for Jesus' body, like some kind of an action. What is an action movie? But that's not the answer either. Another writer that I like to read is, is named John Dominic Crossan. And he writes a lot about what we do know about Jesus. And that's that Jesus loved to tell parables. One of the things that we know is Jesus loved to tell stories. Homespun stories. Stories that, that people around him could understand and relate to. Stories that probably you and I could relate to. Although he might tell them in a more contemporary kind of a of a topic. But he talked about shepherds losing their sheep and, and, and women losing their coins at night under their beds. Kids um, wandering away from home and, and being lost. He told stories that everybody could relate to. And the thing about those stories is, is that as he told them, there was always a point somewhere in the story where it turned upside down on its head. You thought you knew exactly what was going to happen, and all of a sudden the boy came home, and his father threw him the biggest party of the year. Or the lady lit the lamp, and she used the last of her expensive oil to find the coin, and the coin wouldn't even pay for a little bit of the oil that she spent trying to find the coin. What is that all about? These are the kind of stories that Jesus told. You know, kind of like, oh, Henry, remember the gift of the Magi? I think that's kind of a parable, but not really. Remember when, when, when she sold her, her hair and buy him a watch, and, and he sold his watch fob to buy her some combs for her hair? And the story turned, the very end, it just turned upside down, and you walked away going, wow, that's an amazing story. But what was that all about? Well, that's... that's the way that Jesus told parables. But what Crossan says, which is so interesting to me, is, is that not only did Jesus tell parables, he says Jesus was a parable. That the Gospels, as they were written, the whole thing, they were just these big parables about a parable, about Jesus as the parable. And if that's true, if this is the story that all of a sudden turns upside down on his head and becomes something that we didn't expect to happen, then the parable that is Jesus, the turning point is this morning. It's Easter morning. I mean, forget about the veracity. Think about the story and how startling it would be to realize for the first time that all of a sudden the tomb was empty. See, that's the kicker of the parable that was Jesus. 
things were kind of going along the way that we could expect. This is what could happen to a revolutionary in Jesus' time, right? But all of a sudden, when Mary and the fellows go to the tomb, there's no body there. And there's no reason for there not to be a body there. There's lots of reasons for people to want to make it up that, that there really was a body there. And then that, they could explain it. But the reality was it wasn't. The tomb was empty. We, we're pretty sure everybody says the tomb was empty. The Romans say it was empty. And the followers of Jesus say it was empty. And the writers of the time say the tomb was empty. And, and that's it. Because when the tomb is empty, then we go, wow, what, what's that mean? But what it means is that Jesus is still alive. In, in, in whatever form we know, Jesus is still alive. And to ask what that form is really begs the question of, of what happened that morning, which was a change of reality. Actually, everything changed that morning. Everything was made new that morning. The way life was before then is not the way life is after then. That very morning in that tomb, when there was no body, reality changed. And all of a sudden, the way that things were aren't that way anymore. All of a sudden, it's, it's not even worth conversing about where Jesus went or who followed him or what did he look like afterwards because it's all changed. It, it's like the laws of physics all of a sudden changing in one flash, in one moment. And the way the world was is not the way the world is anymore. That's the point. It's not the way it is anymore. Because Jesus is alive. Like the hymn says, because Jesus exists. The reality that is the new Jesus, that reality really exists. And the thing is, it wasn't just one Easter morning, and, and we do Easter after Easter after Easter, and so we go, so what? what? What about tomorrow morning? You get dressed, you go to work, and it's Monday. I mean, you have a good dinner tonight, and the kids found Easter eggs that were laid, you know, little chocolate eggs that were laid by chocolate bunnies. That's a mystery to me. But anyway, that's what's in the nest, right? <laughs> but we go on. Nothing changes. But, but that's just on the level where we are because everything changed. Everything changed. So much so that I don't think we can grasp how much everything changed. It's all new. And it wasn't just new once. It's new all the time. Jesus is alive. The Sojourners community in Washington, D.C. that has been feeding the poor forever and ever used to stand in a big circle every morning before they went out to feed the poor. And we'd stand in a big circle and hold hands and somebody would volunteer and say a prayer. And at the end of the prayer, every day, there was a lady that was there, this, this African-American lady of indeterminate age. All I know is that everybody called her mother. And that just before we let our hands go, she would say, and Lord, remember today that we will find Jesus in the face of someone we meet. Jesus is alive, she was saying. She knew. That day, that day, one of us, if we could but see, would see Jesus alive, alive, breathing, struggling, being And the other thing that we know from, from that moment of transformation, the other thing that's, that's clear to us, not just that everything changed, but that it became light. It became 
good, it became real and honest and open and accessible. That the darkness that was, because of that moment, now becomes something entirely different. And what was hopeless is now hope-filled. Another writer puts it like this. Don't you hate it when you try to find something and Facebook comes up? <laughs> Not now. So this is what he said. He said, this is what Jesus said would happen within the lifetime of his hearers. A new power is let loose in the world. The power to remake what was broken, to heal what was diseased, to restore what was lost. The kingdom that Jesus had inaugurated strangely, mysteriously, and partially during his public career through his healings, feastings, and teachings was now revealed in a totally new dimension. If we think of Jesus during his lifetime and the way we have, and then ask about the meaning of Easter, the answer is obvious. This is the real beginning of the kingdom. Jesus' risen person, body, mind, heart, and soul, is the prototype of the new creation, the prototype of the new creation. The world is new. The world is made new. But we get, we get inured to that. Year after year after year, a preacher like me stands up and says, it's all new. And then we go about our lives and nothing's new. It's still as it's always been. We live in, the, in, in an age of anxiety. We live in the age of, of woe is me's. Woe is me about the situation of politics. Woe is me about what's happening in Europe. Woe is me. But what happens this morning is, is that God put an end to the woe is me's because there was something new. The woe is me's are gone. And now it is the age of hope. Because what happened that morning when Jesus was resurrected and the new reality happened. The new reality was hope. It was an understanding that in some small way, the kernel has been, been born in our lives, in our souls, in our hearts, that brings hope to the world. When God did that, God changed the world, and now it's up to us to make that realization reality, to make it happen. It's small. It's tender. It's vulnerable but it's real. I put on the back of your bulletin Emily Dickinson's poem, my favorite poem of hers. And picture her in, in her room all by herself, isolated as she was in so many ways. And this is what she wrote. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chilliest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. It never stops. The little bird on the cover. I did that because the poem reminded me of that little bird. Look at the little bird so vulnerable and sweet, so ready to fly, so full of energy and strength 
in her vulnerability. That's the hope. That's the hope that the resurrection of Jesus brought to us. The hope that, that we can materialize the change that Jesus brought through his resurrection. That today, a little more, we can be hopeful that the world is changing and that we have a part of that change. That no matter what it looks like out there in here, what this little bird knows and what we know in our own little bird-like souls is, is that the world can change and is changing. That it changed once and it changes all the time. And for us not to realize that change is only our, our heads in some kind of an intellectual fog be in touch with that, that heart bird that's there, that little vulnerable piece, and you will know that it can change and that it is changing. The powers of death and darkness and the powers of annihilation have been defeated. Now it is the powers of growth and love and vulnerability, and those powers endure, those powers are everlasting, and they are in you this day. That's why you're here that's why I'm here, is because you know somewhere inside of yourselves that that hope is what we hold on to. That hope makes us who we are. That hope makes us love. That we're not, we're not strolling in here. We're driven in here this morning to understand the good news a little bit, and that's that hope is at the center of our lives, and it will not die. That hope is at the center of our lives, and it will not die, because Jesus rose today to